0: Good evening. Good evening, and welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African-American department here this, at the Pratt Library, and it's our pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here to hear our fantastic speaker this evening. It is my pleasure to introduce Doleen Perkins Valdez, who is a graduate of Harvard University and is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, Winch. In 2011, she was a finalist for the two for two NAACP Image Awards and the Hurston Wright Legacy Award for Fiction. She was also awarded the First Novelist Award by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association, and Dr. Perkins Van Valdez teaches in the Stone Coast Maine MFA program. She lives in Washington D.C. So this evening Dr. Perkins-Valdez will discuss the work of Solomon Northwood, 12 Years a Slave. Please welcome Dr. Perkins-Valdez to the Pratt Library.
1: Thank you. I suppose if this is tall enough for you, it's tall enough for me, right? Do I need to? Can you hear me? Okay. How are you? Thank you for coming out. It's actually a nice evening. Um, you think it's cold? <laughs> My friend from Jamaica is always, oh it's so cold. I'm like, it's 50 degrees, what are you talking about? It's it's hurricane season there, right? Um, so I was, I'm so happy that you're here. And um, I'm so happy I have the opportunity to come here to Baltimore. Thank you to Judy Cooper for inviting me and to the library for hosting me. This is my second time being here. I love this place. Um, I was here, we think it was three or four years ago, for my novel, "Wench" in this exact room um, with some other women for Women's History Month. And it was really great. I was telling her, she just gave me a um, Pratt Library red coffee mug. And I have one from my previous visit. So I said, I think I'm going to have a set of them. Uh, which is great, because I always, one good gift for me is always coffee mugs. I drink a lot of coffee. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Solomon Northup and 12 Years a Slave. I think um, some of you may have heard the NPR interview earlier this week. I don't know if you did, and that I did here in Baltimore. And then um, how many have seen the film? Wow. That's awesome. It must have been playing at theaters here. I, I, recently, when I was in Maine, I asked the same question, and two people in a big room of people raised their hand, and I thought, maybe this was a distribution issue, that they that it didn't open there. Because, you know, it did do that sort of staggered opening in theaters, and some smaller towns didn't get it, but... I was right outside Portland, Maine, I was sort of surprised that so few people had seen it. So it's great to be talking to a room of people who have seen it. And how many have read the book? Okay, not as many. So that's good. So maybe I'll inspire you to pick it up and um, take a peek. I was asked to write this introduction by an editor at Simon & Schuster. I was asked not as a scholar. Um, in fact, I, I was very hesitant about putting, you know, Dolan Perkins Valdez PhD on the cover because I told her, I said, you know, I am no Henry Louis Gates and I cannot even, you know, he, he's he was a mentor to me and still is a mentor to me, and there are scholars who have done um, much more in-depth work on not only this particular narrative but on slave narratives in general, and so I preface my comments tonight by saying reverently to them that I don't intend to step on any toes. But I come to this as a person who has thought deeply. My my PhD is in 19th century African-American literature. I have thought deeply about slave narratives and about um, our role as contemporary citizens in terms of consuming those narratives and thinking through those narratives. And I've also thought um, deeply about my role as an artist um, and how um, part of the way that I see myself is bringing those narratives into more. Some, one thing that I think the scholars, uh, you know, aside from Gates, of course, he is such a public intellectual, but one thing that I think that most of the scholars can't really do is to bring that scholarship out um, into you know, a more general population. And it's one of the reasons why um, after I wrote *Wench*, I said I would not write another historical novel. And then I ended up writing another historical novel. <laughs> one of those reasons is because it was just so wonderful to have a readership of people who didn't know some of these things. And although the historians have been doing really wonderful, detailed work for years, and you know, I'm probably saying nothing new, I do think um, there are many people who, who didn't know that there were people who were kidnapped and sold into slavery. Um, and, um, so these these are good narratives that need to get out there, and I think that's one of the roles of the artist, and it was obviously the role for Steve McQueen as well. So I'll begin, I know you've seen the film, but I'll begin by talking a little bit about who Solomon Northup was, and then, um, I'll talk a little bit about the narrative and its place among other contemporary narratives of its time, and, um and a little bit more and then we can do some q and I won't talk too long, I know you want to go home, go to bed. Okay. So we know that Solomon Northup was born in upstate New York. He, His father had been enslaved to a Rhode Island family um, and had gained his freedom and moved to um, New York in the Saratoga Springs area. That's where Solomon ended up actually with his wife. He married a woman by the name of Anne Hampton and they had three children. He earned his living, um, he really did, I think, very, because I've seen various accounts of different things that he did, I think he earned his living by various odd jobs. He was a fiddle player, he did carpentry work, he was a driver. And in 1841 two men offered him a generous sum to travel with them to perform. Um, And he went to uh, Washington DC where um, he did the performance and then believed that afterwards they drugged him and he was then sold into slavery. As you know, he, um, he spent 12 years enslaved. He was owned by several different men and um, eventually was able to secure his freedom when a Canadian visiting the plantation agreed to transport letters to Northup's friends and family in New York. He later, after he returned to his family, um, brought charges against the kidnappers. There was a very lengthy, um, really not even a trial. The trial was sort of delayed and this, that, and the rest. And the men ended up spending seven months in jail, but they were eventually released due to a host of technical and jurisdictional problems. Once the um, book and, and Northup's popularity began to wane, the judicial system sort of dismissed the whole thing, and so he he received some justice to the extent that he was able to actually pinpoint and accuse his kidnappers, but they really never served any significant jail time. What happened to him? Well, eventually we lose trace of him. I think in in the historical record the last time we see him is uh, 1863. We know that um, the book came out in 18. 18- 53, he traveled on the lecture circuit um, for a few years with Frederick Douglass and other abolitionists, and he enjoyed some um, fame and made some money. Um, but he eventually had financial woes. He his property was foreclosed on. He, um, you know, there are lots of speculations about what ended up happening to him. Some. People have said that, you know, the kidnappers uh, eventually murdered him out of revenge for uh, bringing the issue to light. Um, Some say, and this is probably, um, I don't know, more probable, he died in destitution and poverty. You know, we don't really know exactly what happened to him. It's one of those things that I hope some historian one day will sort of dig up and and, you know, get an appointment at Harvard for. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, that, that was sort of... I believe that once he returned to his family, he was a changed man. Um, he was obsessed with getting this story written, getting this, um, the book out, with um, letting people know about what happened to him. And you can see it at the end of the film, um, he is not the same man that he was. But the thing that I think is so remarkable about him that comes through not only in the book but also in the film is that he had this remarkable tenacity and this faith in himself even though they renamed him as Platt he never believed that he was that person he always believed that he was Solomon Northup and claimed that name and he he never lost hope that he would um that he would someday see his family again and I and I think that that's really um what's so remarkable about him, even if we talk about the ways in which the experience broke him, and I do believe that experience did break him um, I, I don't believe it broke him completely he he had this remarkable spirit the book um, sold very well it it, it came, came out at an interesting time he um It was published in 1853, the year before that, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin had been published. And as you know, that sold, um, that broke all kinds of publication and and sales records. And so she had actually gotten wind of of Northup and his story, and she had promoted him before the book came out, so that really helped him. Frederick Douglass's narrative had come out in 1845, and um, it was selling very well. And also um, the Fugitive Slave Act had been passed in 1850, which made it very dangerous for escaped slaves. And so um, it was a very critical moment in the conversation about slavery in our country. Um, And one of the things I I always also remind myself of what was happening in in England, Um, the British colonies had outlawed slavery in 1834. Their emancipation date, I think, was January something, 1834. And um, they had then sort of taken up this anti-slavery cause as well. So many of these men were tra- and women were traveling in England and in Europe telling their stories. And, and the British audiences uh, were, had a voracious appetite for slave narratives. Many of them were published in England and sold quite well there. Um, uh, so that also added to this discussion that, you know, Great Britain was starting to consider itself uh, and specifically England was was starting to think of itself as an anti-slavery crusading nation and that it was sort of um, vigorously participating in this conversation. The f- so Northam's Narrative sold 30,000 copies in the first three years, which is really, really a remarkable number. I mean, even if you sold 30,000 copies today, that would be a remarkable number. You know, you'd be a New York Times bestseller. Um, And at the time, the average book sold less than 500 copies. So um, it was pretty remarkable that these slavery narratives, most of them, many of them, I should say, not most of them, um, but the ones that were popular, for example, um, Douglas's narrative and William Wells Brown and James Pennington and um, Henry Bibb and Josiah Henson, they sold in the tens of thousands. Um, and, and it was, it was quite lucrative to, uh, publish them. Um, and, and so it, it was, it was a genre of, of books and they also were published as pamphlets, et cetera, that had tremendous popularity during this time. Um, even though, um, Northup's narrative sold 30,000 in that. You know, sometimes you'll see that it sold more than Frederick Douglass's narrative. Well, it didn't end up selling more than Douglass's narrative, but it did sell more rapidly. Um, when Douglass's narrative, I think, sold 6,000 copies in the first year, and and Northup had sold more. But then, of course, unlike Douglass's narrative, Northup's narrative sort of declined um, as his popularity declined, and then also as he disappeared. Whereas Douglass continued to be a national figure and continued to lecture on the lecture circuit, even after the Civil War, as you know. So um it was it was quite quite a remarkable genre slave narratives. There were there were many of them that were popular during this time, and I'll just mention a few. Um there was one by Ellen and William Craft, and this one was actually published in 1860. This is a really fascinating one if you haven't read it. They escaped by Ellen was the daughter of a white planner and a mulatto slave. So she was very, very, very light-skinned. And they she and her husband escaped by taking a train, and she dressed as a man, and he posed as her servant. And that's how they escaped. It's this wonderful narrative of gender and race and class, et cetera. It's It's one of my favorites. And um it was it was very widely read. They ended up moving because of the Fugitive Slave Act and because it was dangerous. They did move to England some time but they eventually after the Civil War moved back to the U.S. and settled here. And one of the other interesting things about Ellen Craft is that she refused to have children while she was in slavery. She decided that she would not have children with her husband until she had escaped and once they were in England they did have children, four children. Um, And then there was the narrative of Josiah Henson which was also quite popular and um, a lot of people credit him as being the inspiration for Tom and Uncle Tom's Cabin by Stowe. But he's from Charles County, Maryland, um, and escaped and, and published his, he escaped to Canada and published his narrative in 1849. Um, and his sold um, quite quite a bit as well. It was quite popular. Um, and, and there were others, there was uh, William Wells Brown, who was very prominent at the time. He traveled a lot with Frederick Douglass on the lecture circuit And he was credited um, at the time for writing the first novel by an African-American, Clotel, which was published in 1853. But um, he had a really remarkable narrative as well that was quite popular. And from what I understand, when Brown and Douglas, for example, went to England to speak, or they traveled in these um, literary circles with other prominent writers of the time. They were accepted as writers. They were accepted as literary men. Um they they were there was not um a sort of feeling that slave narratives were not literature at the time. But of course after the narratives are published, and we and we do have to remember with these narratives that they are political documents. Um, in addition to their literary qualities, they are political documents that as a result, um, do um, um, sacrifice at times literary merit for its agenda. And that agenda was the emancipation of slaves. And then for those narratives that were published after the Civil War, that agenda was truth-telling and trying to um, correct the record about what actually happened. And so, um, they do, as we read them today, we may say, oh, you know, well, this is very sentimental language, and you know, how much of this was true, and is this real autobiography? Um, But I think we also have to keep in mind that um, they were political documents that were intended to change the law. Many of them were written with the help of collaborators or an amanuensis who um, would uh, Sometimes if the slave was illiterate, they would dictate the story and the writer would translate it down. Other times, even if the person telling the story had a certain level of literacy, a collaborator would help. Um, they were written in this very sort of sentimental language. They often share the same convention. So if you study them, you'll see over and over certain things. Um, appearing such as the religious conversion narratives. Um, uh, Sometimes slave narratives are talked about as proof of humanity documents that part of the goal of the narrative was to prove that slaves were indeed fully human beings capable of feeling, capable of love, capable of conversion to Christianity. Many of them are conversion narratives. Um, In Josiah Henson's narrative um, I, I believe that, yeah, it's Josiah Henson's narrative. He has an opportunity at one point, and he's, he's been through hell um, trying to gain his freedom, and he has an opportunity at one point to kill his master in his sleep. And as he raises the hammer, he thinks to himself, what am I doing? I'm a Christian. I can't do this. And he doesn't do it. And so, and that's in the narrative. And so those were the kinds of things that you see over and over again, which interestingly with Northup's narrative, um, it is not a conversion narrative. And it has, I think, uh, you know, some very unapologetic things to say about Christianity. Um, But I will say that one of the conventions of Northup's narrative um, that you do see over and over is the idea of religious hypocrisy. That sometimes in those narratives the most religious slave owners were in fact the most brutal. And that's something that you see in Northup's narrative as well as others. But um, slave narrators did try to appeal to the moral, religious side of the readers. Um, And there were also these conventions of sort of, you know, what we would consider stereotypes. You had the benevolent slave owner. You had the um, jealous mistress um, who was jealous of the female slave. You had the um, brutal slave owner. There were these conventions that appeared over and over, which I think was partly due to the genre that these were the kinds of things that sold that people I mean people read these things almost like novels you know um, but also partly due to the fact that these types existed and so it's it's really um, to me uh, a a more um, interesting narrative when you see those areas of gray and I think Northup's narrative does have areas of gray here or there it's a very sophisticated narrative and then of course if uh, if you'll recall um, from Frederick Douglass's narrative, the moment where he decides he's not going to take it anymore, you have those moments throughout the narratives where the slave decides that he has, ha- well, basically he has this awakening where he decides he can no longer be a slave. And then that is when the, the story makes its pivot and he begins to enact his plan, his or him or her, um, to, to escape. So yes, among the narratives that were published, Solomon's was one of the bigger bestsellers. It was um, it was quite popular. Um, someone asked me on the NPR interview the other day about how um, typical it was for um, slaves to be kidnapped, and um, I'll just say that after. Northup's narrative came out and and in in the um, 150 years since the Civil War um, historians have verified that kidnappings were not uncommon. Um, There have been hundreds of cases documented. Um, There were even, um, you know, Ellen Craft mentions in her um, narrative that um, at at one, one point in New Orleans she encountered two orphaned white children They had been orphaned, and someone seized them and sold them into slavery. They were later able to gain their freedom. But um, it was such a lucrative business. In Northup's narrative, I believe he sold for $1,000, which um, in contemporary money would be something like $25,000 to $30,000. And in 1860, a young... And of course... A, a thousand is a little I don't, I don't want to say it's low it's a high price because he's he's pretty young and and he does play the fiddle which helps to raise his value but in 1860 a young um male um physically healthy slave sold for 1500 to 2000 dollars which is about 35 to 40000 dollars so you can see that it was very very lucrative there was really it really didn't make sense for a slave owner to kill you because it was like throwing money down the drain so there was this sort of line that they had to tread between punishment but not affecting your productivity. And sometimes that line was crossed in, in both directions. So, um, you know, I, I really felt once I understood the value of slaves, how it changed my perspective really on, um, one, how few men could afford them You know, only 25% of whites owned slaves. Most whites did not own them because they couldn't afford them. Um, Most slaves, most men who did own them, and this is sort of, um, this was hard for me to kind of wrap my head around because I'm not very mathematical, but um, most people who did own slaves owned fewer than 50, but most slaves lived on plantations that were greater than 50, if that makes sense. It's sort of like now we think of the wealth being concentrated in the hands of like, 25 billionaires in the U.S. or whatever it is. That's exactly how it was in slavery. Most of the slaves are concentrated in the hands of individuals who owned these plantations, but most men who owned them owned fewer than 50. Am I going too fast for the interpreter? I'm okay? Okay. Um, so, these are also, and then the other thing I was going to say, so the kidnappings were not uncommon. and. Also, um, in terms of uh, people actually gaining their freedom through legal means, most of the narratives that were published were about escape, were about, you know, um, stealing away in the middle of the night sort of thing or, you know, hatching these plans. Um, and, you know, when you read them, you'll see that names are retracted because if they're published before the end of slavery, they don't want to implicate other people in criminal the criminal acts of assisting them. Um, You see all kinds of things that are put in there to protect um, people who may have helped them along the way. Um, But there were a number of slaves who did gain their freedom through legal means. They called them freedom suits. Uh, One of the earliest of those was Elizabeth Grinstead, who actually um, right near here in the 1600s sued for the freedom of her and her infant son. It was the colony of Virginia at the time. It was 1656. And it was largely in response to Grinstead's success in the courts that the law that said that children follow the status of the mother was passed. Um, Later, um, after, um, um, well, in 1839, there was another slave narrative by Lucy Delaney. But in 1839, her mother has successfully sued, Lucy's mother, her name was Polly, had successfully sued for her freedom, but she stayed in St. Louis to try to gain the freedom of her remaining daughter. The other two daughters had escaped, but Lucy still remained in Saint, In Missouri. And she stayed there to file a subsequent lawsuit on behalf of her remaining daughter and eventually won. And, um, you know, that, that was one of the, the slave narratives that when I was preparing to write Wench, I read and thought about the things that, you know, she stayed behind, you know, even though she had gained her own freedom, she stayed behind to um, try to um, get her daughter out. She just refused to leave her. Um, Another question that comes up in regards to the narratives has to do with their authenticity, because as I mentioned, they were often... um, um, illiterate and dictated the narrative and in, and in many of the narratives you see these um, authenticating documents at the front by individuals in the community who are verifying that these are this person's words, this actually happened to them, etc. And um, Northup's narrative was no different in terms of people doubting the veracity of his story and um, and, and after these, when these books came out, pro-slavery Um, men were very vehement with trying to discredit the narratives by saying that it was anti-slavery propaganda and pointing out these conventions that were appearing over and over as a kind of novelization. Um, And and this authenticity argument also came into um, um, conversation about Northup. And probably there are still people who think, okay, I don't know, who think he made it up or something. But um, he did collaborate with a lawyer by the name of David Wilson. Um, Once it was determined that they wanted to publish him, um, they found David Wilson and paired them. David Wilson was not only a lawyer, but he was an aspiring poet. And so one of the questions people often ask is about the language of Northup's narrative. It's very... um, you know, uh, eloquent and it's very sophisticated. And some of the words are, you know, I had to look up, you know, and um, and 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 historians have said that yes, it's probable that Wilson took some liberties with the language, as any of of the um, amanuenses did, and it's probable that he may have even taken some liberties with the story. But they have been able to verify that the main things that that North Northup shared in the story were accurate, but they also believe that Wilson captured Northup's voice. He had an above-average education in New York, and, he, I, you know, I believe that he was a fairly learned man. We know he was literate, etc., but, um, you know, the line between, as, as far as authorship of these narratives, is, is a bit of a blurred one, but I think the, the most important thing has to do with whether or not what he said actually happened and also um, whether or not Wilson captured Northup's voice and feelings about his experience. And and my belief is that he did. Um, But you know, uh, other accounts such as Sojourner Truth's narrative were entirely written by proxy. You often see in some of the in some of the titles of of the narratives written by himself or written by herself. Um, And I think that one of the things we have to remember with these narratives is that the things that they have to teach us um, really don't change because the stories that people are telling in those narratives are really typical of what was happening to people at the time. So then I'll just speak just one second on why what I thought about the film. And we can open it to questions. Um, The film, um, I, you know, I think adaptations of books are fraught and difficult and I think we really do have to think of films as different from the books which they purport to represent. It's two different pieces of art. But I did feel as I watched the film that, um, that, that McQueen stayed Fairly close to Northup's narrative, as much as he could, and it was a lot to cover. I mean, that's one of the other um, artistic choices you have to make as a filmmaker. What do you keep in and what do you leave out? And I thought that um, he did a tremendous job of um, sticking faithfully to the story. And, and, and one of the other things that struck me as I sat there watching it was um, McQueen's aesthetic sense. It was just a beautiful film, and I felt that I had never seen slaves filmed so beautifully, you know, because when you think about it, it's a difficult thing to do. I mean, they're sweaty, they're working, they're in, they're covered in rags, um, they're unhappy, um, they're mournful, and it's a difficult thing to capture that on camera in a way that is beautiful. And I felt that unlike any other filmmaker to ever Broach this subject, McQueen really did that. And I was thinking about it, particularly in that funeral scene where the woman is singing and he puts the camera sort of right below her face and elevates her to this sort of regal level. She, you know, by having the camera below her, it really makes her look very um, dignified and queenly. And so, um I thought that, this, for me, um, one element of the movie that really stood out to me was his, his the beautiful eye of the camera, the way in which he uh, really tried to capture Northup's story without huge um, divergences from the narrative. And also, um, finally, it was not lost upon me that the two main actors of the film have close ties to Africa, Chiweto Ejiofor, who's British, but his parents are... From Nigeria and Lupita Nyongo, who's um, has dual citizenship with partly with Kenya and I thought that um, um, it was a it was a really wonderful choice of actresses to to choose Lupita for the character of Patsy because she's such a beautiful girl, but she's obviously in the film um, really broken. And by the the um, rapes and abuse she has to endure, but yet she maintains this sort of dignity. And even when you see that sort of red thing in her eye at the end and she looks off, she maintains this sense of dignity. Someone asked me recently, did I know if North have ever had contact with those people again who he'd been enslaved with? And from what I understand, I don't think he did, but I don't know, um, maybe there's a historian who has found that he did, um, the chances of him encountering them again would have been fairly slim. Um, I think, you know, I mentioned earlier that um, I come to this as an artist thinking about the importance of these kinds of stories to us as contemporary audiences and I wanted to just say that um, I think these kinds of films really do need to be made. And I know that there have been many responses to this film and to this story. I think part of that is out of the frustration of the lack of range of Hollywood representations of African-American stories. But I think even, you know, I don't want to say setting that aside because we can't really decontextualize it from that, but even having said that, I think that these stories have to be told. And the fact that some of the reactions to this film and story have been so emotionally laden to me really speaks to the necessity of getting these stories out there and telling them. Um, I recently um, picked up um, you know, I don't know why but picked up on my desk James Baldwin's essay The Creative Process which I read i had read years ago and, and every time I go to something James Baldwin wrote I find something different even if it's the same paragraph. And um, this time when I picked up the creative process, what stood out to me um, were his paragraphs on the role of the artist in terms of forcing us to look at things that make us uncomfortable. He says, it's our natural tendency to create a bulwark against the inner and outer chaos in order to make life bearable and to keep the human race alive. But he said, it's the role of the artist to remind people that there is nothing stable under heaven. And so as I read that, I was thinking about um, part of my role as an artist, part of Steve McQueen's role as an artist, and maybe even your role as an artist is to sort of force people to look at those things that we can turn away from in our daily lives and that we can become um, really desensitized to. If we're not sort of troubling the waters of our social fabric, then we're not really doing what we need to be doing as artists. And then I thought about um, your own native Tanahasa um Coates um, article in The Atlantic in November called Delineating Evil. I don't know if you read it, but I, I wrote down this quote when I read it. It said, to be human is to be detailed and individual, and thus to see inhumanity you must not submit to the temptation of seeing people's oppressions as an undifferentiated muck of pain. Part of the job of writers, historians, artists, and intellectuals is not to allow evil to become inhuman, amorphous, and globulous, to make sure that we don't get lazy, that the contours of particular evils are delineated and precise. And I think, I thought about this as I was thinking about um, why it is important for us to continue to read these narratives. Because we don't want to ever reach a point where we think of slavery as the sort of big amorphous chunk of time um, in which, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, slavery, the first slaves arrived in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619, there were many, many different phases of slavery, there were many geographical permutations of it, Um, there were many different um, dialects spoken among slaves, there were different cultures based on what you farmed, there was cotton culture, um, in the deep south, there was hemp culture in Kentucky, there was rice and tobacco um, in South Carolina, which also formed this, the culture of the plantation. Depended also a lot on um, the, um, the culture of your master, how much um, uh, um, freedom he allowed you to spend time with your family or to marry, even though you weren't able to legal marry. Legally Mary. some plantation owners did allow couples to um, have their own ceremonies, others did not. and there were and there there were still many things that we have to learn about what happened. And um, I think that you know part of part of the reason why it's important for us to have Solomon Northup's narrative out there is for us to learn the particulars of the experiences that people underwent. I just read an article that appeared in the LA Times a few days ago about Saratoga Springs, New York. Apparently, I don't know if anybody saw this article, the, this, you know, the descendants have been gathering there. They gathered there at Skidmore College uh, a couple of years ago to celebrate Northup. But there are people in the town who have been demanding that there at least be a plaque put up in Solomon, uh, Solomon Northup's honor. And they were finally able to get a plaque up, but then they wanted to have um, some kind of commemoration in the main town hall. And the mayor said that they could not... And also, there, are, there is a uh, history museum in downtown Saratoga Springs, and has no mention whatsoever of Northup. And so, there's been this sort of um, battle in the town between people who feel, "Let's move on. Let's not talk about this. We're, you know, we're not the South. We're a Northern city, etc." And then um, people who think that it's really important for us to remember that Northup was a hometown hero. And this is really the way in which I view this history, and I view um, these people who were able to escape and get their narratives, and any of them, really. Um, sometimes people ask me, and I and a lot of my mom friends, uh, one of my friends texted me the other day and said, um, uh, I was trying to talk about slavery to my daughter, and it freaked her out, and I'm wondering if you have any time for us to go to the museum together. And I get a lot of those kinds of questions, and my own approach to it has been, um, to teach my daughter this history from a place of love, um, to talk about it as a way of talking about heroes and heroines. Um, and to not, it really, I don't think it's productive to talk about it in a sort of um, blaming way or negative way. And, um, and I think I've been pretty successful with that, but I'm very protective of her. You know, when other people tell her things, I, I correct them, I make sure she has the accurate information. Um, I regularly look for what's happening for Black History Month so I can get to her before the school gets to her with that same old stuff, you know, and I'm just very, very proactive with it and, and, um, and so far, you know, I've been good with, with it, but it's, it's really a sort of day-by-day day thing that, you know, we have to sort of teach our kids. Um, and we do have to do it because the schools are only equipped to do so much. And so um, that's why, you know, and, she, and she's so funny because she just started reading, and so she'll pick up my book, Wench, and she'll say, Wench, what's that? And then, you know, she'll, like, read, and she's like, I read your book, Mama, you know, even though she didn't read the whole thing. But, you know, I, I want her to read it when, she, when she's, I won't censor her with that, and so I just want to be the first one. I'd rather she do it with me and I talk to her about it and shape her impressions on it before someone else does, and she's very open. She's like, well, you know, she has a brown face, like I have a brown face, you know, and and that's how she thinks of race. She doesn't think of it as is loaded in any way. It just is what it is. So that's the end of my comments. I think we could take some questions. Thank you. Okay. Okay.
0: The first one you kinda asked me to have a wondering myself about the authenticity or not really the authenticity of the author the people who wrote the book narrative, but the people who translated
1: the and I know it's a strange word, emanuensis.
0: Yeah. But I was wondering about that too. Because um I wanted to just what you said about your daughter. I don't know how a person could teach uh the children about slavery without feeling it. About found or lady when it was great. Number two, in the in in a uh, perspective of that, what do you think about the Jewish people who never ever ever pretend to forgive the German people who have not only apologized, but family, etc. And we can't even talk about reformations. I think that's
1: exactly okay. I hope I remember everything you just asked me. Stay close by. Um so the first question had to do with what was the first question? I remember the last question. Why don't I start with the last question? Oh, authenticity. Um, Well, you know, again, my feeling about authenticity is that it is a little bit of a loaded question because there were, you know, collaborations, for lack of a better word, and there were liberties taken by the men who wrote the stories down, but that's why there was a historian by the name of Sue Eakin who was obsessed with Northup and she's one of the people who was responsible for uh, rediscovering and republishing his narrative in the 1960s. And, um, and one of the th- obsessions of her life was to verify what happened in his account. And she spent many years in the archives doing that. And I think that that's an important thing to do. Um, but they were political documents and, um, you know, they weren't strictly autobiographies, um, they weren't memoirs in the contemporary sense that we think of a memoir. There there was nothing that was, you know, they weren't, you know, sometimes we think of the contemporary memoir and I don't mean to offend any memoir writers because this doesn't (laughs) include everybody as a form of navel-gazing, you know. (laughs) This was not that. This was a polemical anti-slavery document. I don't believe it was propaganda because I believe propaganda will, you know, as a rule, will lie in order to affect its political um, ends. But these stories did have political intent and so I'm less concerned with the authenticity um, of, you know, every little detail, whether or not Patsy ever did this or Polly did that. And I'm more concerned with... Was he kidnapped? Yes. Was he enslaved for 12 years illegally? Yes. Because he was a free man. Did he gain his freedom through, you know, these uh, um, friends of his in New York State? Yes. Um, And did he have all of these life-altering encounters with other enslaved people? Yes. Those are the things that are important to me. And was he a smart, talented musician, against whom such a crime is even more egregious. I mean, not to say that it's ever justified, but part of it is that it's such an egregious crime against a man of his intellect that, you know, it really touches you. And those are the things that are important to me about the authenticity. And then, you know, I don't, there was this, um, there was this article in the New York Times on Sunday that had my family all talking all day called, What Drives Success? This is in response to your second half of your question about Jews and their Holocaust stories. Did anybody read that article? Y'all should look that up online and read. It. And it's all about like different ethnic groups and how. What are the sorts of forces that that create an uh, an environment of achievement for different ethnic groups? It's the New York Times on Sunday. It's called "What Drives Success." You can just Google it. And um, one of the things it talked about was, um, you know, feeling that you had to. Um, correct some wrong against you and your people. And, you know, it was talking about, you know, Indian Americans and Jewish Americans and African Americans and Asian Americans. And part of it they said, you know, there's this balance between feeling insecure about your place in society, but also feeling an overwhelming sense of confidence. And it says, even though it seems like these things are kind of antithetical, these are the kinds of traits that children who become successful have. They both feel like they have something to prove, but they also feel have a sense of confidence. And, you know, as as the conversation was going in my house and, you know, we were calling friends because, you know, we're all parents of young children, all trying to figure out how to do it. You know, one of the things that we discussed with the African-American achievement gap has to do with making sure these kids have a feeling, a sense of history, a sense of having been wronged, and education being a way of making that right. And that, to me, is the... The real importance that even we, as middle-class parents of children of color, can still instill in them, because they have a lot of um, ease in their lives, but the struggle is still real, despite you know our sort of um, class luxuries, for lack of a better term.
0: Yeah.
1: We do. We have to. We have to supplement. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: Good uh, evening. Um, with, I saw the movie in the of the out. Uh, one the things was at a couple of points, you know, you, you know, you be, you know, you be, uh, be the more the stronger of the two, because together and he was real nasty. Mm-hmm. And my question here, so my question here, how frequent up to the Civil War for the slave owners and mostly women? Because I, mean, I know there were women involved in this and did they do it uh, as cause sometimes the husband with a foreigner, the husband was waiting for them, but
1: it, the husband, how difficult was this? Well, typically women were not able to legally own property, particularly once they were married. There were these laws called coverture laws and they um, when they married, their property was the property of their husbands. Those began to become contested actually in the 1850s, state by state. But um, they, the slave owners were men. But I, you know, this is the thing about white women during slavery that I often talk about when I've talked about my book Winch. Slavery was a patriarchal institution and there, have, there were these uh, sort of myths after the end of slavery that of white women sort of sitting on the porch and drinking tea and enjoying the status. But you remember how complicated Alfre Woodard's character was in the film and her sort of emulation of white womanhood was almost sort of farcical. Um, Slavery was was an institution that did not benefit any women. It was an institution in which women found themselves um, powerless against their husbands And this is the case with the wife in the film. Part of her frustration is out of her um, feeling of powerlessness, not to excuse her behavior, but I do think it was a very difficult system under which to be a woman, a white woman, or a brown woman, period. And, you know, especially when I speak in the Deep South, I often find myself reminding women of that, that... um, some of the most fervent abolitionists were women, right? And, and there was a relationship between feminism and abolitionism for that very reason. And then, and then the last thing I'll say is I recommend the novel of Valerie Martin called Property, in which uh, a white woman's husband is um, sleeping with her um, enslaved servant, and she's furious about it, and she's actually kind of going crazy. And um, it's, Valerie it won the Orange Prize. It has a, a blurb by Toni Morrison on the cover. It's a very thin little book. I couldn't put it down when I read it. And I often say, you know, Valerie's my sister novelist, because um, it, it really is, to me, a beautiful, nuanced, sort of, n- non-political representation of the kinds of challenges that white women face during slavery you know she doesn't i mean you know there's there's um there's parts where the woman is mean and there are parts where you feel really sympathetic towards her and i think that was probably more often the case the wife in the film there's never really a moment where you feel sympathetic for her but but i knowing the history that i do i felt you know I felt sorry for her. I recently went down to the, um, to speak at the planta- George Mason Plantation down in uh, Stafford County. Y'all know that? Have y'all been there? Ooh. Well, it's stunningly, It's it's almost like, it's, it is, it's like stepping back in time when you drive in, it's got this sort of tree-lined road and it was just like hazy and the grass was perfectly green. I I couldn't decide if it was like a paradise or a nightmare. It was just a very strange place. And, um, but the people were very, very nice. And, um, you know, I I gave a talk there. And afterwards, one of the young docents who was a recent college graduate, really smart young lady, invited me to, you know, just, she was going to take me on a tour of his house. And so I said, okay, that'd be great. When am I going to be down here again? So I, we go in. And um, she was. She pointed to a picture of of Mason's wife in the dining room, and she'd had twelve children, and eventually, you know, died in childbirth, the last one, I think. And as I looked at her in that picture, I just felt sorry for her. I just looked at her, and I that was just, you know, when she was talking about her, I was like, God, that's so sad. What, you know, she had all those children, and then, of course, he remarries. I mean, you know. <laughs> I just, that was what I saw when I looked at that portrait of her. But it was a beautiful home, and they were tremendously wealthy. And even, no, there was nowhere I stood on that property where I didn't look and it didn't look like a postcard. They've done a fa- the, the foundation has done a fabulous job with it. I mean, and you could go in the front or the back. I mean, there was water in the back and fields in the front. It was, it was really, I had never been on a plantation like that. It was quite stunning. Thank you. Sorry for the long answer. I'll be quick.
0: Hi, Hi. Thank you for uh giving us a talk. I walked later I enjoyed it very much, I Um I could ask many questions. Um uh, probably find it to you I do quite But um, my question has to do with, with uh how in the film there was like a capture of a balance of faith. and you talked about it a little bit and how of that idea of the Christian and almost that was kind of context Right. how were you able to address his mental um, feelings with his balance, and And that might be a loaded question
1: too. No, that's a really good question. Because I've been thinking about that recently. What 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 did, what was his faith? Did he ever profess any kind of faith? Huh? No, he never really does. He never really um, you know, he there there are not really elements of any kind of like Christian conversion narrative or anything like that. Which uh-huh. which to the next question, why do the slave songs
0: and being like a master
1: of the title.
0: Right. So that time with music and I would probably have to read the narrative his narration in manuscript, it's kind of like the novel that like he wrote himself. But maybe you can talk about your intent uh, behind writing and what you did. Maybe that's uh, why you did that.
1: In terms of religion or?
0: In terms of, 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 of what, um, choosing him as a, um, a piece, to, uh, choosing his history as a topic of you know, research. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with different research and but we're mm-hmm. behind starting research,
1: I'm not sure how to finish well so i i just really saw myself as when when i was asked to write the introduction to the book as sort of being uh you know uh, like you like everybody in this room like i am not henry lewis gates you know i am just an average person who has a deep um love of this period deep interest in this period Um, and I feel very emotionally connected to people in this period and so I really just try to convey what my thoughts were as just a reader, you know, just a reader of, of narratives and so I haven't done, you know, I've done research, you know, obviously, but I am not a scholar, so, you know, so I try to be very careful about stepping on those brilliant toes of my mentors and, and even other young women who I've met who are doing tremendous work with 19th century um, African American literature and history. So, um, But I thought, you know, someone pointed out to me that the last line of the film, which I think is interesting because this is a McQueen editorial decision, he says to his family, Please forgive me. And the family says, There's no reason to forgive. There's nothing to forgive. I think that's a very interesting line, particularly if you think about it in the context of religion. Because when I saw it, I didn't think about it in the context of it. I just thought, He feels he's let them down in some way. And, you know, as the provider, as the man of the house, they've been gone 12 years. And he feels really terrible about not being there for his family. But when we think about forgiveness from a Christian perspective um, and what the sort of echoes of that as an ending note of the film are, I do think that in some ways Christianity takes a little bit of a bath in Northup's tale. And, you know, the faith, the real faith, is the faith in himself and in his own sort of divine potential and spirit. And I think that's a. That's an interesting question and that's why I was saying to you. I I like your question. That's something I'm still pondering um and thinking about.
0: Yeah. First of all, I suppose you try not to think about two energy. Um I had no idea that the narrative. Uh
1: huh.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I did go see the film. I was not going to see it because um, I felt like that could not happen. Mm-hmm. And I do feel that way about certain things And they, they all but I want to see that, and I'll just say that uh, Charles knows when I'm coming to see a movie
1: <laughs> because most of the time that will go know the until they're, they're Right.
0: hmm Um the way he explained the film and how beautiful it was. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought basically the same thing, but the term that I used was uh time where it almost like glorified the so like left. Mm-hmm. But by saying, they can say that narratives are like, and that the beauty of it is a different perspective. So I want to thank
1: you for that. Thank you for saying that. And I'll just end by saying, you know, this is the tricky balance of capturing slavery. On the one hand, you don't want to sugarcoat it, but on the other hand, people have only a certain tolerance level for the violence. And you really have to figure out how to skate that line. And I remember when my book came out, I was looking for people to blurb it, and I sent it to this one very well-known African-American writer. And, you know, my my publisher said, it's a book about, you know, white men that vacationed with their enslaved mistresses at a resort. And uh, she said, oh, I'm not going to blurb that. I don't want to have another romantic view of slavery. And then, you know, obviously then when the book came out, people talked about the rape scene in my book and said, oh, why did you include that? I couldn't take that. I had to skip through those pages. It's a very fine line, and you just try try to be as real. Because think about it. Everything that we think about in contemporary terms that is a form of societal dysfunction had to have happened. Pedophilia, um, you know, rape, um, everything that we think about that that the human person is capable of doing. If you owned individuals, you did that. Every sexual fantasy that any corrupt individual had, who was a slave owner, it happened. You know, and. We don't even want to go there as to how ugly it was, you know. So what we have to do is just figure out how much can we show, as ta reminded us, to delineate the particular evil but not have people shut down on us. So there's my alarm. That's it. Thank you. Thank you.